Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. What you are about to hear is a webinar we recorded today, Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Thank you so much for listening. So hello and welcome. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is November 16th, 2023, and uh, we are here for a webinar today entitled Repression in the Shadow of Israel's War on Gaza, Part 1, Five Israeli Human Rights Groups Sound the Alarm. Uh, some housekeeping very briefly before we start. As always, the format for this event is going to be a conversation between myself and our panelists. Um, you are welcome as the audience to uh, ask questions. We ask you to put those into the Q&A box, which I will be keeping an eye on. Um, do not put them into the, the chat box. I will not be watching the chat box. Also, we are live streaming this on Facebook. So welcome everybody who's on Facebook. Um, we also have enabled um, accessibility for closed captions for anyone who prefers or needs to read the discussion. So you can follow that way as well. Um, I probably forgot something, but I want to just dive right in because we have so much to cover. So just as quick introduction, um, as everyone knows at this point, following Hamas's attack on October 7th, um, and while the international spotlight is on Israel's assault on Gaza and the ensuing humanitarian crisis there, um, what we are seeing inside Israel is Israel's extreme right government pursuing what appears to be an accelerated and I would argue radical agenda of expanding repression. So FMEP as an organization is holding two webinars on this topic. Um, we're doing today's, which I'll introduce in a moment, and then you can join us again uh, this coming Tuesday, November 21st, where we're gonna look at repression inside of Israeli society against Israeli citizens, and particularly against Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, we'll touch on that today, but that's actually going to be the, the central topic on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, our guests will be Hassan Jabarin, who's the founder and director of the Israeli civil rights organization Adala and Rasoon Basharat. And Rasoon is the new editor in chief at 972 Magazine. So mark your calendars and you can register for that on our website, www.fmep.org. Um, for today, today we're taking a broader look at the Israeli government's agenda of repression and looking at how it is being implemented in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, in Israeli prisoners, and inside Israel. Um, for this event, we are joined in this conversation by representatives of five of Israel's leading human rights organizations, each an expert in their own right. These five groups recently came together to hold important diplomatic briefings in Israel-Palestine, and they agreed to come together for us here with FMEP for the benefit of a wider audience. So let me do brief introductions. You can find longer bios for everybody on our website. So in no particular order, we have Anat Litvin. Anat is Director of Prisoners and Detainees Department at Physicians for Human Rights Israel, PHRI. We have Tamara Newman. Tamara is Director of International Relations for the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, otherwise known as ACRI. We have Jessica Jesse Montel. Jess is Executive Director of Hamoked Center for the Defense of the Individual. Uh, we have Tal Steiner, who's the Executive Director at the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel, Kati. And last but not least, we have Yahav Erez. Yahav is the International Advocacy Coordinator at Yesh Din. 
So um, we got a lot to cover and five really superb panelists. Um, so before we jump into this, this is not exactly the topic of the webinar, but an important place to start. The five organizations, your five organizations, recently released a joint statement uh, denouncing Hamas's attack on Israelis and calling for release of hostages and an immediate ceasefire as the utmost priority of their organizational focus. And we will put a link to that statement into the chat box. Um, I want to just say this is a critical part of the work, and I want to actually give the floor to Jessica. Uh, to just describe what this coalition of Israeli groups is doing in advancing these priorities. So thanks, uh, Lara, and to FMEP for hosting us. And um, I mean, I think it's good to start with this joint statement, uh, which came out uh, the first week after the Hamas attacks and, you know, is an important framing for everything that is happening. There's a lot of sort of uh, war of narratives or a mobilization of both sides, as if uh, you can only be on one side. And of course, the challenge for human rights organizations is to be, you know, in favor of human rights for everyone. So, uh, you know, the, the Hamas attacks were uh, a shock to all of us, I mean, we're still learning how horrible, uh, you know, everything that happened on October 7th, but to categorically uh, condemn the atrocities committed by Hamas, as well as the hostage taking and the holding of Israelis hostage in Gaza. Uh, and of course, the Israeli assault on Gaza, the horrific uh, death toll for civilians in Gaza killed in the Israeli bombardment, as well as the humanitarian crisis, the devastation of infrastructure, the forced displacement, uh, the critical reality for hospitals, for access to food and water and fuel. Um, so the, the urgent priority message from the international that we have issued collectively to the international community is to be prioritizing the protection of civilians that means no you know targeting civilians neither in gaza nor in israel to work urgently for the release of israelis held hostage in gaza and for uh, an urgent response to the human rights and humanitarian crisis right now in gaza and and you know, there's a lot going on outside of where all the focus is, and that's what we wanted to talk about today. But of course, that also has to be front and center on the agenda of the human rights agenda and the international community as a whole. Thank you. I, I appreciate that as framing. And I, I will say, you know, one of the things that's been, I think, painful for many of us who work on these issues is a post-October 7th framing, which suggests that it is only possible to feel pain and sympathy and empathy and fear and everything else for one side. And that somehow being able to hold the pain and suffering and fear of both peoples in one's heart is, is a contradiction. And I, I really appreciate the framing, which which pushes back on that, which I think is the most, most human and, and morally um, defensible framing that is out there, the only framing that is morally defensible out there. Okay, so we're going to jump right into the topic of today. And I want to ask a, a few of you to give a general overview of the issues that you are tracking and most worried about post-October 7th um, and how the Israeli government is responding in policy and in practice. So I want to start with Yahav. 
Yahav, in your capacity working with Yeshdin, which focuses on human rights violations of Palestinians living under Israeli occupation and apartheid in the West Bank, that's the population we're talking about. Can you talk about the situations of Palestinians in the West Bank with respect in particular to settler violence and terrorism violence at the hands of both settlers and the army and how that has changed since October 7th? And there's a lot of things that I think, you know, come to mind here. We're talking about closure, violence, olive harvest, um, the role of the IDF in enabling or even engaging in violence with settlers and also the question of forcible transfer, which has been much in the news of late. So if you could talk about any or all of that. Sure, thank you, Lara. Um, it's important to first mention that everything that's happening in the West Bank is happening under the cover of the war and the settlers are taking advantage of the attention and the troops, the military troops being diverted to Gaza and to the South of Israel. Um, and while this is happening from the first day of the war, there's been closures of routes in the West Bank um, for Palestinians. So most of the routes between all of the Palestinian towns, cities, and villages are closed off for use of Palestinians. Meaning, if you are a Palestinian, um, it is almost impossible to commute in the West Bank for over a month now. Um, and if you try to commute, you might meet uh, settler violence, very deadly settler violence. And when I say deadly, I mean deadly because since October 7th, over 192 Palestinians in the West Bank have been killed either by Israeli security forces or by settlers. Um, at the moment, we know of at least seven killed by settlers, but um, this is very hard to determine because of the settlers and um, and military kind of merging, uh, especially since the beginning of the war, we're seeing um, we're seeing a lot of uh, soldiers who are either half uh, wearing half civilian clothing, half uniforms, and or armed but wearing civilian clothing, or armed and uniformed but using um, civilian vehicles or vehicles with no license plate or um, armed and uniformed with masks. Um, it's very confusing, both the, both the Palestinians and um, the organizations that are monitoring this have a very hard time to even distinguish between soldiers and settlers. This mix is becoming more and more extreme. Um, some of the Palestinians also report recognizing soldiers who are now, soldiers who are standing in front of them with uniforms and armed from past events of settler, of settler violence, um, like individually recognizing them. And um, this has several reasons, one of which is that some of the settlers are being um, recruited for reserves. Um, some are kind of self-initiating recruiting themselves, um, but we're not sure exactly what are the the numbers? Uh, we do know that the what we're used to seeing as settler violence is now becoming more and more um, soldiers acting like settlers usually do, um, either taking part in the settler violence, joining in, and sometimes even just just uh, carrying out attacks um, as they are armed. Um, some of the incidents also include just civilians, settlers, 
attacking the Palestinians while they're armed, not even um, claiming to be soldiers, but just armed because there is uh, a phenomenon of the government uh, mass arming civilians in Israel, um, which is very dangerous for uh, the day after as well. It's important to mention not only in this in this situation and not only in the West Bank. Um, so Yeshdin has documented um, not 219 settler violence incidents since October 7th um, that have taken place in 92 towns and villages. Um, this is basically settler violence on steroids. These are all things we've seen in the past, but since October 7th, they have become much, much more extreme. Um, of course, as I've said, much uh, many of these incidents involve uh, either presence of soldiers, either standing by or joining in. Um, when it comes to the olive harvest that began a few days after uh, October 7th, um, it has become almost impossible for Palestinian farmers to harvest their olives. Um, security forces and settlers have been preventing them from doing so. Uh, security forces through this uh, coordination system that is uh, allegedly designed to protect Palestinian landowners from settler violence, um, having the landowners need to uh, get approval to harvest crops on their own land, um, on especially in lands that are uh, adjacent to settlements. In practice, the coordination mechanism limits Palestinian landowners from ac accessing their own lands only to twice a year. Um, this year, the military canceled the coordination mechanism entirely and is preventing landowners from harvesting their olives near settlements. And in addition, in many cases, the military has been preventing Palestinians from harvesting their olives, even in remote areas far from settlements, areas that usually do not need coordination. Um, while this is what the military is doing, the settlers have been harassing, assaulting, um, stealing crops, destroying trees, um, without intervention from Israeli forces. They're preventing the Palestinians from harvesting their olives, chasing them off their lands, and then sometimes harvesting it themselves. Uh, sometimes even documenting themselves doing all of this and posting it proudly on social media and in telegram groups. Um, we've been documenting not only a spike in sporadic attacks, but a very systematic operation organized from within the settler movement um, enabling the tracking and, and prevention of entry from Palestinian farmers to their lands. There are these groups that are dedicated to mapping the farmers who dare try to harvest their crops with daily messages, mobilizing violent groups of settlers to go attack them. And in many of these messages, uh, they're given a specific, specific guidelines on how to identify Palestinian farmers harvesting their olives and how to assault them once they're located. So this is very, this is this has a very uh, planned system. It's not just um, some rotten apples and it's not just uh, people filled with uh, feelings of revenge and anger. This is very planned, very meticulously planned. Um, I also want to say about uh, a few words about the forcible transfer um, that's been going on in several areas in the West Bank. Um, we've documented at least 15 communities. Um, this is over 1,100 adults and children which have been forcibly transferred from their homes following extreme settler violence. Um, this is only since October 7th, of course. This is also a phenomenon that we've known from the past. 
um, but is that it has accelerated since the war broke out. The settlers beat, threaten, loot the belongings of the residents, sometimes even as they're packing up with the intention to leave. Um, the Israeli authorities, as with the olive harvest, uh, don't do anything to prevent this. Therefore, leaving leaving these uh, shepherding communities, most of them are shepherding, are, are uh, very much rely on shepherding. Um, they leave them completely defenseless. Um, and it's important to say that because they rely on uh, shepherding and grazing areas uh, for their livelihood, um, this, this displacement from these lands basically means annihilation. Um, we've also uh, published a, a joint statement with uh, 30 other organizations demanding international intervention um, when it comes to this forcible transfer. Um, it is obvious that any other option is not giving any protection to these communities. Um, and unless there is international intervention, they will remain unprotected and vulnerable to any kind of brutal attack uh, that the settlers uh, wish to carry out. Um, and that's it for now. Thank you. So I want to follow up with a very and very quick answer on this one. So people listening are hearing what you're talking about and they're saying, well, you know, you talked about people being killed. Is anyone being arrested? Is any who is there? This We've heard this in the United States question asked previously in the White House. Who's there to protect the Palestinians? What kind of accountability does Israel have, which says no international body can ever investigate itself because it has the judicial ability to investigate itself? Just very quickly. So over 18 years of uh, research and uh, monitoring that Yeshdin has done when it comes to criminal accountability of settler violence, over 93% of the cases that Yeshdin has uh, monitored of the uh, complaints filed to the police about settler violence have been closed without an indictment. And we see this as official impunity and as official policy. Um, this These rates are so high that we cannot claim that there is an investigative body that actually has the will or the capacity to hold these settlers accountable. And since we know this, we already know that um, these, these uh, violent settlers are not being arrested and they're not having um, uh, they're, they're not having the investigations carried out like they're supposed to. Um, this we know before the war. And there is a phenomenon of uh, uh, very few, really, you can count them on one hand, of uh, attackers that have been arrested. Usually they're, they're arrested under um, uh, administrative detention, which is not, does not lead to criminal accountability. It is, it is pure cosmetics. Um, and it's also something that we don't specifically, we, we, Yishdin, we don't support because it doesn't lead to any investigation. Usually it's just for show to show. Yeah. Thank you. That's a question I get asked a lot. Okay, Jess, we're going to move to you. So Jessica Montel, from your experience as the executive director of Hamel Kid, can you talk about the situation? And now we're going to move to the Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem and how it has changed since October 7th. Yes. Uh, the situation in East Jerusalem is really volatile, and uh, there is, I, I mean, I would say it's, it is uh, throughout the country, this climate of fear. Um, you know, you have to remember, I think everything that is happening 
this past month is uh, headed by the same government that we have had for this past year. So for the past year, we've been talking about the very extremist, um, you know, uh, uh, ultra nationalist, religious fanatic government. So the, our minister for uh, in charge of the police is, you know, basically a, a convicted of terror supporter uh, from previously. This is the person responsible for enforcing law and order. I mean, as Yahav said, enforcing law and order against violent settlers in the West Bank, but also the Palestinian population in East Jerusalem, um, which is you know, uniquely vulnerable as residents of the state of Israel, but not citizens, and also subject to measures of um, uh, population transfer, forced displacement from particular neighborhoods. Uh, home demolitions are continuing, but also this crackdown on Palestinians. Uh, checkpoints around the city uh, police conducting, you know, demanding people's cell phones to be looking to see what they liked on Facebook. Um, we're seeing a mass arrests in the West Bank, as well as in East Jerusalem, as well as measures, um, you know, again, a continuation of the same uh, threats that we have seen throughout the year to be increasing all of the ways to disenfranchise East Jerusalem Palestinians to take away residency rights from people that are uh, disloyal, people that are suspected of incitement. Uh, so it's, you know, a range of measures that are being used. Uh, I mean, it, in some ways, East Jerusalem is unique. And in some ways, it's a continuation of the same phenomenon we're seeing both inside Israel of uh, a crackdown on citizens of Israel as well as in the West Bank, this, um, you know, pervasive climate of uh, cracking down on populations. Thanks. And, and just to remind people who are listening, um, Jessica mentioned East Jerusalemites are residents. This is the status granted to or, or put on residents of East Jerusalem, Palestinians, since 1967, um, effectively under Israeli law. They are they are as if they are foreigners who've been who've moved there and been given the privilege of residing in the state of Israel. That is a privilege, not a right. They do not enjoy any rights of citizenship, which means that they are always hanging by a thread because since it is a privilege, it can be revoked. Um, and that is something that's always been hanging over people. Um, all right. So we're going to move now to another category of vulnerable a vulnerable population, which is prisoners. Um, and this is Palestinians held by Israel. These are some of whom have gone through some measure of um, due process and are in jail. Some are held in administrative detention, which Yahav mentioned, um, and who are immensely um, vulnerable. And they're an issue that's highly relevant right now, obviously, because the world is talking about the possibility of ceasefires and prisoner hostage swaps and all of that. Um, so, Anat, we're going to come to you. You are the Director of Prisoners and Detainees Department at PHRI. So you're in a really good position to help people understand the issues facing Palestinians incarcerated by Israel. Um, so I want you to take a little time and just give us basics. Who is being held? Uh, what is their status? How many are there? Um, what did the trends look like before October 7th? And how have those trends either changed or escalated since October 7th? Thank you, Laura. 
Uh, so before October 7th, there were around 5,000 Palestinians who were defined, who are defined uh, by Israel as security prisoners and detainees uh, in Israeli prisons. Out of those, uh, about 1,000 were administrative detainees. And now after October 7th, uh, the number, the overall number is over 7,200. And can, can I ask you to just explain the distinction between administrative det detainees and other prisoners? Uh, yes. Uh, well, administrative detention is a measure that is allowed by international law, but it should be used in extreme cases. Israel uses it on a regular basis. The numbers are increasing during the years. Uh, this is uh, even before a thousand is a very large number for Israel. Uh, these are people who are detained. Uh, uh, they are uh, by the order of the um, uh, military officer in charge of the West Bank. Uh, no charges are pressed. Uh, uh, the reasons for the detention are, are not revealed to the detainee and the administrative detention order can be renewed periodically endlessly. So. The person doesn't know uh, when uh, he is going to be released. So uh, the number now is over 2,000 administrative detainees. Uh, there is also an unknown number of Palestinians from Gaza, some of them belonging to Hamas forces that took part in the attack on October 7th, and more that were captured during the invasion of Israel army to Gaza. And until recently, all these people were held by the army and uh, the places and conditions of detention were not made known to the public. During the last week, there were publications that some of these people are being transferred to the Israeli prison service, IPS. Uh, there are also some people from Gaza who worked in Israel or stayed in Israel for medical treatment uh, that was not available in Gaza. Uh, from before October 7th, uh, on October 7th, their permits were revoked, which made uh, their stay in Israel illegal. And at the same time, they were not able to go back to Gaza. They were gathered by the army and held in uh, army camps. Uh, a resident of the West Bank who was held in one of those camps by mistake and released a few days after that, uh, reported of very harsh conditions. People were held in huge cages in the sun for the first days, then moved to uh, buildings, but all, all of the conditions were very bad. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, about 3,200 uh, 3, were uh, sent back to Gaza, but an unknown number of people are still held here. We don't know where, we don't know the numbers. It is impossible to uh, um, get any information. Uh, uh, Jessica can tell about a petition, Hamoked, the two petitions already that Hamoked submitted uh, on this issue. Uh, it is uh, it is a very worrisome uh, uh, group of people uh, because uh, uh, two of them uh, died shortly after they were captured already and it wasn't revealed by the army until uh, a main Israeli newspaper asked uh, for this information. Uh, 
but uh, if I go back to uh, the people who are held uh, in the IPS, uh, um, from before October 7th and after, uh, the need to find a place for thousands of new detainees caused overcrowding and uh, people report of uh, doubling the number of people in the cells. So before there were between five and six and now there are 10, 12. Uh, people are sleeping on mattresses on the floor. Uh, they report that the food uh, is uh, insufficient in quantity and quality. Uh, they are, since October 7th, uh, the IPS locked all prisoners, including uh, common law prisoners, in the cells for uh, all the hours of the day. Uh, common law prisoners started to uh, go back to the normal regime in prison lately, uh, but not the Palestinian prisoners and detainees. Uh, they are still held in the cells for uh, 23 hours a day, one hour is for a daily walk and including a shower that is not inside the cell. Uh, people report that uh, they cannot reach the prison's doctor, they are not taken into the clinic. Uh, They're also not taken to medical treatment in hospitals. Uh, the IPS itself, uh, in uh, in a specific case that uh, uh, we addressed them about, uh, wrote to us that there are no specialist doctors who are entering the prisons at the moment. This was uh, uh, one of the important ways for prisoners to get uh, medical assistance. Uh, the doctors in the IPS are not experts. Sometimes there is a need uh, for an expert opinion and the doctors would go into the prison. Uh, parallel to this, uh, since, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping a bit. Uh, on October 7th, the um, uh, Minister of uh, Health uh, addressed the Prime Minister and asked that uh, the um, um the terrorists, uh, this is his uh, words, uh, will not be uh, treated in Israeli hospitals. And uh, the Israeli Medical Association is completely against it, but the hospitals themselves, a few of them, said that they are not going to admit uh, terrorists. And uh, it is unclear uh, what is going on and where these people, where people are getting treatment who are in need of a hospital treatment. There is no hospital facility in the IPS. And although according to the law in Israel, when there is a war, there is uh, like a military hospital that is supposed to be opened. And the authorities said that it is functioning. No, it, it, it can't be exactly the same as a public hospital. And there are treatments that can only be made in public hospitals. So it's a huge problem. Uh, and we are also afraid that not only uh, members of Hamas that were arrested on October 7th are not going to be taken to hospitals, but also other Palestinians who are held in the IPS. And I will uh, end with the fact that uh, this whole thing is going on uh, with uh, no family visits, no phone calls allowed, no almost no uh, visits by lawyers, and with a, a consistent denial of visits for the ICRC.
So no one really knows what is going on. Uh, we got, uh, it, there was there were publications in the media uh, a couple of days ago of uh, uh, people from Gaza, detainees from Gaza who were transferred from the army to the IPS. Uh, and uh, the IPS uh, proudly announced that they are held uh, in solitary confinement in the darkness 24/7 and music is played 24/7 this can be can amount to torture uh so it seems that uh, the israeli prison service is uh really uh acting in vengeance rather than under any frame of law or ethics Thank you. And and for listeners, I just want to remind people, and I think when you start talking about prisoners, there's a certain, there's there's some part of the audience that listens and says, well, these people have committed crimes and they don't deserve any sympathy and whatever. And there's two things that I think you've underscored in what you said. One is that, first of all, all prisoners have rights. This is under international law, under Israeli law, under international humanitarian norms. Um, the fact that you have committed crimes, if you have or been found guilty, does not um, take away your basic rights as a human being. That's the first thing. The second thing is that in the Israeli-Palestinian context, we're talking about a population that lives under foreign rule. Um, in the best case scenario, the people who you're talking about have gotten at least a pretense of due process, but it is not due process arguably by the by the levels of the rest of the world. And a large portion of this group, you've said now it's 2000, have had no due process. These people have not been tried. They have not been convicted. They don't know the charges or the evidence against them. So you have a population here that is doubly vulnerable. Um, and that's that's why I think what you're raising is just so incredibly concerning, even before October 7th, but after October 7th, more so. So Tal, I want to come to you and even dig more into that. And you are the executive director of the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel. Um, I have always found it horrifying that there needs to be such an organization in the first place, but obviously there does. Can you talk to us about the safeguards, if any, that exist for Palestinians in detention and the concerns that Picati has regarding torture and inhumane or degrading treatment of detainees? Absolutely, Lara. And yes, we are also sorry to see that our organization is still needed, is still relevant in Israel, even though already 20 years ago, the Supreme Court in Israel ruled the torture is absolutely prohibited as it should, as Israel is signatory to the UN Convention Against Torture. The fact of the matter is the torture through interrogations, through abuse in the prison service and in other capacities still happens in Israel today. And that was even before October 7th. Of course, the concern is that with the very negative sentiment in Israeli society, the rage and the fear from the terrorist attack that Israeli citizens have endured. Taken together uh, with the complete lack of access to those prisoners, uh, including the combatants captured from Gaza, but in fact all prisoners right now, not to the ICRC, to the Red Cross, and very slightly to visiting lawyers. We find it extremely difficult to enter the prisons, not to family members. So with no eyes of the outside world into what is happening in the prisons, the concerns are very, very high. The torture, in fact, has been perpetrated. And we do hear that from reports from the field. So lawyers who have been able to visit uh, detainees over the past month reported 
everything from random abuse by prison guards, uh, just beating, humiliation, uh, painful shackling, and all other types of, of abuse. So, of course, the growing concern of torture being uh, handled intentionally throughout security interrogations. Um, beyond that, the fact that five prisoners already have died in the prison, that the autopsy still remains unclear, so the circumstances are unclear is another warning sign. Now, as for safeguards, Israel is considered from the outside to be a developed democracy with a very strong separation of powers and a Supreme Court that is worldly renowned. But the truth of the matter is that it is also changing. And we've seen through the judicial overhaul that Israel has been going through for the past year from previous rulings of the Supreme Court, and especially the Supreme Court rulings ever since the war has started, have not gone in our favor. And that's very important to note. The first uh, a petition being filed against the overcrowding of the prisons was dismissed by the court, where the court has actually said to the Israeli state, you can bypass our own jurisdiction. It is as the, the Supreme Court who said there has to be a minimum living uh, uh, space for detainees, and now we allow you to just throw that out the window because this is war. So that was the first petition. And then the petition regarding the Gazan workers who have been illegally detained incommunicado outside of any legal framework. And again, the Supreme Court would not interfere with that. Now, most of them probably have been released since then. And I think the fact that the petition has been filed by human rights organizations had something to do with that. But the Supreme Court would not interfere. And currently, we are looking at the last petition regarding all the very abusive detention conditions that Anat has mentioned. And there, too, the state has replied that all punitive measures are, in fact, needed for security reasons, that it has an opinion by security experts. It can show the court ex parte without the appellants being able to view it or to challenge it. And our concern is that here, too, the Supreme Court would uh, fail us and 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 uh, remove another safeguard from abuse that is now given to detainees. I also I don't know if you want to comment on it. I, I you know for all of us who are learn, who are watching things day by day on media and social media, um, Itamar Ben Gvir, the the minister who is in charge of prisoners, is as far as I can tell basically bragging publicly. There's videos and pictures bragging about how much he's cracking down on the living conditions of prisoners. And this predated October 7th, but has escalated since. Do you want to talk about that at all? Because this isn't just about like a he said, she said, the prisoners say this is happening. The minister says it's happening. Yes, he's, he seems to be very proud of those conditions uh, that are not described, for example. Uh, if indeed people are held in a dark cell uh, with running music of the national Israeli national anthem nonstop, this is Abu Ghraib type abuse. And this is torture and this is illegal. And the fact that the minister who's in charge of applying the law uh, brags about breaking it is a serious problem. And also he does not only brag, in the same tweet account where he said, this is the conditions the tourists are being held. He had also announced that they would try and re-legislate uh, the death penalty for terrorist act, which is an act uh, initiated by the Jewish Power Party, the party of Itamar Ben-Gvir. And indeed, this Monday, this law is coming for a first hearing in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament. 
So they don't only talk, they, they also act. And our concern is that they are now going to try and harness the Israeli rage and fear and sense of insecurity to legislate the death penalty in Israel, whereas the whole other democracies in the world, you know, in the US, it's a bit of a complicated subject, but the global trend is to abolish the death penalty. And here we see an attempt to reintroduce it into Israeli law, which is a huge, huge human rights problem. Thank you. All right. Tomorrow, we're going to come to you and another whole kettle of fish in terms of vulnerable population. So as the spokesperson for ACRI, the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, which is really the big civil rights organization addressing a whole range of different violations and threats to civil rights of Israeli citizens, can you describe the situation for Palestinian citizens of Israel and also for Jewish citizens of Israel who articulate support for Palestinian rights or who like posts on Facebook or all of that? And, and specifically comparing the situation as it was before October 7th to what it is, is today after October 7th. Yeah, thanks a lot, Lara. Yes, uh, we're seeing a huge difference to before October 7th, a huge uh, attempt in the authorities to crack down on freedom of speech, freedom of protest, and a great uptick in the incitement against the Palestinian Arab population of Israel. Um, and this is reflected in widespread arrests suspending students from universities and dismissals in the workplace, and as we said, mostly against Arab citizens. It's important to emphasize that, that support for terrorism and incitement to violence are criminal offenses in Israel, but that's not the nature of the vast majority of cases. Uh, they have been There have been arrests now for empathy with civilians in Gaza or opposition to the occupation. And some of the arrests have even taken place on the basis of old statements, rumors, or baseless claims. Tamara, I, own... I want to stop you. I want you to repeat that. There's been arrests for empathy. Can you just, just say that again and, and explain what that means? Because that's a hell of a statement. Sure. There have been arrests for people's social media posts that empathize with civilians in Gaza. I think I'll say that, like a lot of places in the world, the line is being blurred between Gazans and Hamas. And those, when you make those two words interchangeable, all of a sudden uh, it's empathy for terrorist organizations, which is uh, an offense. And one of the reasons that this was allowed, this crackdown has been allowed, is that one of the first things they changed was that the police no longer need the approval of the state prosecutor to open an investigation against the citizen for what's called a sensitive offense. Those are the sensitive offenses that touch on the issues of freedom of speech. So the police are now given a huge amount of discretion to carry out investigations and arrests for social media posts uh, that they see, whether they took place today or whether they took place a year ago. Um, and they're using it as a form of intimidation, um, predominantly against the Palestinian citizens. So we've seen to date 135 arrests for social media posts, and very few of them have actually turned into indictments, which really shows that it's being used as an intimidation tactic because anyone can be arrested for 24 hours and then uh, released again. And um, we've also seen the universities take this into their own hands and conduct disciplinary actions uh, against students uh, for their political statements on social media. Uh, to date, we're aware of 105 cases of Arab students being called for disciplinary measures and universities right across the country. 
Um, on the other hand, the universities are not engaging in a crackdown against hate speech or incitement to violence on behalf of Jewish staff or students, which we see in a very widespread manner as well. So the message is very clear. If you are Palestinian, your speech is being watched and dissenting opinions are not being tolerated. And then we've also seen the police abandon their responsibility to protect the right to protest. They have rejected requests for protest licenses and dispersed protests with violence and force. Exactly one week ago, after refusing a license for a large protest, leaders from Arab society decided to hold a small invite-only public gathering in the center of Nazareth. Um, as less than 50 people, uh, they wouldn't have required a license, making it a completely legal gathering. Uh, but the leaders were arrested on arrival or even en route to the protest. And this included four former members of Knesset uh, and an executive director of a, a civil society NGO. They were held for a number of hours and then, then they were released again. And it was clear that this was a delay tactic by the police to cancel a completely legal protest and to intimidate the Arab public from engaging in protest. And I'll just update that earlier today, Akri, my colleagues, were in the High Court regarding a protest for this Saturday night, uh, initiated by Hadash, the Jewish Arab Communist Party, which will call on a ceasefire and the return of the hostages. Um, the, the plan was for the protest to take place in central Tel Aviv. And in the end, we were successful today, and the protest will go ahead, not in central Tel Aviv, in, in a, a different location and with a restricted number. Um, but we should note that uh, basic right to protest was only happened after uh, going to the High Court because it was based on a message that was only slightly beyond public consensus and the police felt that they could automatically uh, reject the, the license to protest even though it is their, very much their obligation to protect the right to protest. Um, and so these arrests and intimidation is aimed largely at Arab society and it's contributing to a message to the greater public that there is an enemy at home. And this is now becoming a new narrative that we're seeing. So I'm gonna quote now from uh, the police commissioner, it was already a couple of weeks ago, um, and it was uploaded onto uh, um, social media uh, with a video accompanied in Arabic saying, in Arab saying, in Arabic by the chief of police. And he said, there will be zero tolerance for any events no riots, not from the media, not from doctors, not from singers. Anyone who wants to identify with Gaza is welcome. I will put them on buses that are heading there now. Um, and so this is the kind of language that we're seeing, and it's specifically a message, as I said, in Arabic targeted at uh, the Arabic-speaking audience. Uh, and then, there's, as we already talked about, Minister Bengvir, and he's now using the enemy at home as a hashtag. Uh, for example, he attacked an Arab judge who released a detainee because the uh, the judge uh, said that the suspicions against her does not constitute a crime. And in a tweet where he attacked her, he, he used the hashtag referring to him as the enemy at home. Um, and the corresponding message to the enemy at home is, I will protect you. And this has allowed the government to advance an authoritarian policing agenda, which I must say they already had this agenda before October 7th. But now in the shadow of the war, they're able to advance this agenda with little to no opposition. Uh, so the criteria for gun licenses has expanded to include what we estimate as an extra half a million citizens. 
Uh, the police are now issuing military-grade weapons to civilians without proper training or supervision uh, for people who are participating in hundreds of new community security squads that are being established. And this is happening only in Jewish communities, although it also includes Jewish communities within mixed cities, where we are already seeing evidence that the authority of those civilian guards is being abused against their Arab neighbours. In our view, this indicates the bankruptcy of the authority's duty to protect personal security, because those who are supposed to protect civilians are the police and the army, but instead it's being outsourced uh, to private uh, citizens. And this concurrent messages of take up arms and go and defend yourself together with we have an enemy at home is a very dangerous situation for uh, Palestinian citizens. Uh, the Israeli public are being convinced to fear a minority who are not the enemy. Arab citizens and many Bedouins were also victims of the Hamas attack on October 7th. And now they are being turned into a fictitious target to achieve a false sense of security for the, for the greater Israeli public. And so whilst all eyes are on Gaza, we should really pay attention to the fact that this anti-democratic government are exploiting the situation to promote a policy of persecuting minorities, stifling dissent and enhancing their own power. And this is a situation that will impact us long after the war ends. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to add a comment, which is maybe less diplomatic than what you've just said, which is, I don't think it's as an observer of Ben Gavir and people around him for years, I, I think it's generous to say this is just a matter of saying we'll protect you from them. Um, this fits into a framework of they are not really Israeli, they are not welcome, and, and a policy which is preferring to have only Jewish citizens if possible. And if Arabs are going to stay, they have to sign loyalty oaths and have lesser status and lesser rights. I think that's an, a clear objective of some of the people that are in government today, which seems well served by creating effectively um, race wars inside of Israel. But that's, that's just me. I'm not a human rights observer. I'm a political analyst. Um, all right, we have about 20 minutes left. So, I want to. I have basically two questions for all of you, and I think it's going to be easiest if I just put them together and let you you each have a shot at saying whatever else you want to say. Um, so, for all of you, except for a few statements that we've seen from Biden and others about settler violence, people seem much more confident talking about the narrow question of settler violence than about Israeli policy in Gaza and human rights and about prisoners or anything else. Um, we we really basically see nothing in terms of disapproval statements of disapproval. Um, about the what Israel's doing. And there's been little in terms of calls for restraint or or any sense of that there are any breaks that could be put on Israeli policy, all the things that you're describing. So I, I want to ask you to what extent um, you see any pressure that I'm not aware of. Um, is there pressure on the on the BB government to 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 roll back? Um, this repression that we're talking about today, separate from the the campaign in Gaza, is there pressure? To what extent does it exist? And to what extent does an absence of pressure um, actually make what's happening worse and make it more likely to expand? And can you talk about where you think that pressure could come from if it was to happen? I mean, we've heard strong statements from like Jordan. Does that matter at all? Do you see the US, UK, Germany and the like ever stepping up on this? 
And and the last piece of it, you are all working for advocacy organizations. What would you call on them to do? This is your opportunity to speak to a wide public. What should the public, what should allies of Israel, what should governments be doing? Um, and I think we're going to go in, let's do reverse order. So Tamara, you're going to go first in this round. And by the way, since this is the last round, you can also use it to say anything else that you meant to say and didn't remember to say. Um, I think if you see our statements, we'll continue to call on to say abide by international law. And I think very quickly, the international community, human rights organizations, but also the media are very quick to equate the fact that that's not the framework that Hamas used. And that is quite obvious and evident to all of us that the Hamas use of human shields and terrorism and attacking civilians is far beyond any idea of international law. But that's not where we expect Israel to be. And that's certainly not what we expect America to tolerate as an ally of us as um, uh, in, in this, and that Israel still does need to uh, operate in the framework of that law, despite the fact that those who we are uh, at war against may not be. Um, and in that sense, the uh, respect for um, limiting to every extent possible the loss of civilian life. And of course, I wanna also take the moment to just reiterate the need to return the hostages um, that um, perhaps we didn't mention as early enough, but I want to be very clear that all of us have an unprecedented um, call to immediately return all of the hostages to Israel. Uh, and I think I just gave you what I wanted to say. That's all. Thank you. And and as you were talking, I, I kept remembering something that someone said to me early on in this conflict, which was this crisis, which was the fact that Hamas violated international law does not give Israel a pass to violate international law. That's not how international law works. That's not even how domestic law works anywhere. You know, the criminal commits crimes and doesn't obey the law doesn't mean that law enforcement isn't also isn't still bound by law. That's the point of rule of law. All right. So, Tal, you are up next. Sure. Well, uh, what you asked uh, reminded me of a statement President Biden gave a few uh, days ago, uh, calling on Israel to learn from American mistakes after 9-11. He said, don't make the same mistakes that we had. And I think that while he was referring to the disproportionate attacks on Gaza, this can very well be applied to other measures as well. If we're talking about the death penalty, if we're talking about the use of torture, uh, the, the experience uh, in the U.S. post 9-11, the Patriot Act, the uh, harassment of human rights defense, all of that are things that Israel can learn a lesson from and not repeat the same kinds of mistakes. And so I think more international pressure is needed and more international attention is needed because while we appreciate the sympathy to the Israeli tra tragedy, and as Tamara said, all the hostages that have been taken, the tragedy and the pain that we're feeling, the fact that we're still under attack. I live in Tel Aviv. I hear the the alarms going every night. And still, this sympathy is, is welcomed, but it can't come at the cost of accountability to international law, to human rights law, and to making sure that we don't set precedents that would be left with us for many, many years to come, even after this conflict is over. And it will be over at some point. So I would really request attention and speaking up against all of those harmful initiatives and against uh, this really blatant 
abuse that we're seeing towards human lives of, of people incarcerated right now. Thank you. Anat, over to you. Well, I join uh, and agree completely to everything my colleagues said before, but I also want to add that uh, I would ask immediately to put pressure on Israel to allow access to the Red Cross into the Israeli prisons and uh, also lawyers' visits because this is the basis of everything. And uh, if no information is coming out and no one knows what is going in inside, uh, horrible things can happen. Thank you. Um, and yes, uh, Jessica, you're up. Yes, uh, I mean, I think it's super important to make a distinction between supporting uh, Israel and supporting this government. Uh, this government that we have seen is a danger to its own population. I mean, failed to protect us from this attack, uh, a colossal failure in the response since the attack. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the President Biden and the administration have tremendous credit in the eyes of the public. I mean, uh, a Biden coming to Israel and his speech resonated you know, across the board with Israelis. So that gives him uh, really, uh, you know, he has a lot of tools at his disposal to be ensuring, I mean, it, it's not, it, it, there is no distinction between um, advocating for the welfare of say Palestinian civilians in Gaza, the need for humanitarian access, the need for respecting the laws of war in Gaza and ensuring the best interest of Israel. And the situation here, I mean, what Tamara describes is also affecting all of us. I mean, uh, uh, like never before, we are afraid. Uh, we human rights activists, we anyone with any sort of critical message, I mean, to say that empathy for Gazans puts you in danger. I mean, uh, uh, people being attacked on social media, people's children being threatened, lawyers afraid to go to court. So, um, you know, people use that word fascism easily, but uh, the slide into fascism, I mean, I think it, the, the, that slippery slope is clear to all of us. So, uh, I mean, that's why I come back to support for Israel. Of course, people who care about Israel do not, um, you know, it's easy in this um, fear this climate of war to slide into authoritarianism and it's much harder to claw our way out and particularly with this government. So then everyone who wants to be standing with Israel, standing with Israel has to be standing for, you know, democratic Israel, free Israel, moral rule of law, respecting Israel. Thank you. Um, I, I find myself reflecting on the mirror image of that in the United States a great deal these days. Yahav, you're going to get the last word in this round. Uh, thank you. I want to take off where Jessica ended with standing with Israel. And I feel that any, any country and government uh, or people who have been wanting to be supportive of Israel after uh, the, the tragic attack that Israelis have undergone, um, has used this term, Israel has the right to defend itself. But it's very important to distinguish 
between defending Israel and between all of the things that we have talked about um, in the past hour, I mean, the settler violence, the, the, the immense pressure that Palestinians are living under for over a month now. I mean, they've been living under for years and years and decades, but this past month has been has been so extreme that uh, this cannot be called defense. This uh, defense and security illusion that we're that we've been living under and that we've been using as a justification to control the lives of millions of Palestinians cannot cannot go on. And um, if there's one thing that we've learned from uh, this attack on uh, October 7th is that this illusion of security will never, it will never manifest in, in actual safety for Jews, for Israelis, for anyone living here. Because if you build, if you build a fence, there's gonna be a hole in the fence. If you build a wall, there's gonna be people breaking down the wall. There's gonna be people breaching it. Um, when people want to be free and they want to stop being oppressed, they will find a way. And so this, uh, security complex is is not actually bringing us safety, and we need to find a way. We need to uh, come to a political uh, uh, agreement, um, and not keep building walls and uh, checkpoints and closing people in in small spaces and shrinking more and more the space of life. Thank you. Thank you for that. And and that actually ties into what I was just thinking, listening to all of you, which is, you know, I, I have so much respect. We all have enormous respect for your organizations, for the work you do. It is not easy being a human rights defender in Israel under what are normal circumstances, which are, which are abnormal by definition. But under current circumstances, um, I know it, it is harder than ever. Um, I find myself reflecting I have on what you're saying and reflecting on the growing repression and efforts towards repression in the U.S. as well. And I think it, it's clear that, you know, if the idea is that Israel's self-defense and Israel's security requires um, pretty much all acts being available to Israel against Palestinians with no no red lines, no restraint, nothing, then, then that has to be accompanied by growing, constantly escalating repression because people are going to push back. It does conflict with the basic values and norms of so many people. And, and resolving the question of repression is directly connected to um, to taking head on what is the, the political doctrine of the current leadership of the state of Israel and the doctrine which has largely dominated Israel's relationships with Palestinians going back for at least the past 16 years in Gaza and, and long before that. So these are these are big issues. But for people who thought they could they could somehow separate the two and will focus on the human rights without paying attention to the underlying political structures. I think that has been um, definitively shattered as, as a framework. Um, so I want to thank again, all of you, and thank you for letting me just, you know, muse as a, as the moderator of this. Um, thank you for today's conversation, uh, timely and urgent. And thank you for all of your work and for sharing it with us and recognizing that all of you are in, under pressure and at risk for speaking out, which we recognize and respect and we worry about you. Um, thank you to everyone who joined us, who's listening and watching the event live or who's listening or watching it after the fact. Um, we had a few questions in the chat box. I wove them in where I could, but we just didn't have enough time. I'm sorry for that. Um, I wanna remind people to join us again on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday for part two of this webinar, which will feature Hassan Jabarin, the founder and director of the civil rights organization Adala and Rasun Bisharat, who's the new editor in chief of 972 magazine. Magazine. We're gonna be focusing squarely on the situation facing Palestinian citizens of Israel in that 
event. So please check back at the website www.fmep.org for a list of resources relating to the conversation that you've just been listening to, for announcements of upcoming events, and for other resources. So uh, we're going to leave it there. Thanks to everyone. And until next time, we're signing off now.